Hi, my name is Jens. And my name is Kylie. You're listening to World Class Podcast. The thing is, problem is that it has, it has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, that in the beginning, IS was not was not a threat in Europe. It was a it was a radical group fighting down there, committing acts of terrorism, atrocities, but they, they weren't attacking Western countries. But I think that one of the tactics of IS is, is to get as much attention as possible, to provoke people. And, and the reason why they want the attention is because they're not strong like, in numbers. They're not strong with, me, in, with their means. But the more scary they look, the more people they will attract who thinks that this is a way of changing the world you know to 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 a kind of a reality that they want that was nagib kaya that you just listened to he's a danish journalist who has been covering terrorism and extremism in the middle east for the majority of his career uh, nagib has gone to incredible lengths to tell stories from the inside of terrorist organizations like taliban and isis But what makes Nagib so special, besides the fact that the Taliban has kidnapped him multiple times and threatened his life, is that he's driven by a firm belief that terrorism and extremist behavior is more complicated and has more complex beginnings than we know. He has been published by the BBC, Al Jazeera, and I think most Danish media outlets. Um, he's made three documentaries, and he has actually also just released a book. So translated from Danish, it's called The Story That Is Not Being Told. Nagib aims at showing the complexities of contemporary terrorism. And later in this program, you'll be able to hear the fascinating conversation that we recently had with him. It will definitely give you a lot of perspective and make you a lot smarter, hopefully, on the topic of terrorism. So be sure to stay tuned. But first, the way that terrorism has been perceived is full of misconceptions. In this program, we are going to talk about them with the help from the world's leading academics on the topic. Uh, namely two of them, and they are called Ogan Goldman and Michael Stoll. Their research concerns concepts of the difficulties defining terrorism, the myths surrounding terrorism, and the way that terrorism may be changing in relation to globalization. Okay, that was a lot of heavy words. Yeah. <laughs> Before we delve into our first academic theory, I believe, Jens, you have an academic word of the day for us to discover. That's true, and before we have an academic word to discover, we have an academic word jingle to discover <laughs> i think that it's safe to say that the last one we had was horrible so hopefully this time we'll be able to go with this that was frankly terrible yeah it, it was too long also yeah <laughs> but I, we, i feel like we're getting there i like the like the electronic parts of it maybe like last yeah, time it was more some elements last time was a little bit too country yeah country hokey Anyway, the academic word of the day um, of the program, of the episode, is securitization. And if you didn't, if you hadn't heard about it before, Kylie, would you be able to explain to me what securitization is? No, I definitely, c I haven't heard of it before, to be honest, which is a little bit upsetting. I, I don't know um, <laughs> if it's because it's the Copenhagen School, which is a school of political science oh, thinkers okay. who invented the word, if that's why. Maybe, um, might yeah. be. But uh, securitization is uh, an international relations uh, theory uh, that says that um, state actors uh, might transform 
uh, subjects who do uh, something uh, into uh, a state matter of security. Mm. So, like, I have to explain that better, I think. Yeah, I'm so, I, I mean, it fits really well with the topic of terrorism because um, securitization, one of its biggest um, usages is when a terrorist atti- attack happens because state actors might turn the terrorists into actors that you have to react with uh, in order to make security. Okay, Do you understand? so it's almost like taking, is it like taking an issue and making it a larger security threat than it is? Or it's just sort of taking that issue and making it a huge part of the security agenda of a state? Well, it can be both actually. Okay. But I think the main point is that a matter that is maybe somewhat connected to a matter of security becomes, you know, blown up a lot. So, you, like, you you, oh, okay. like you, yeah. you, bl- you blow it out of proportions in a way in order to mm-hmm. legitimize action. So, l- for example, you could say that uh, Bush's war on terror after the 9-11 attack, that was a securitization of the uh, 9-11 attack because right. he made it into a matter of, you know, national security. Yeah. To, co- co- to combat terrorism in yeah. Iraq by going okay. into the country. So that's mm. that's securitization. So that his securitization of that 9-11 event was the legitimizing factor that led to his call to have a war on terror. Exactly, because okay. you can't really make major policies without having some a kind legitimate. of legitimate reason to do so. Okay. And the theory of securitization is just that you, as a state actor, you can actually use events that happen to your advantage by making it a matter of security because as we know from realist uh, you know international relations theory the state is expected to provide security for its citizens mm-hmm. so if you can make a matter a matter of security then you will have legitimacy to you know do almost whatever you want yep. like like invading iraq uh, which turned out to be you know failure let's not talk about that <laughs> anyway that's uh, i think okay. it's, it's a good word to have in the back of our heads that is a good word when we go uh, into terrorism now i'm glad yeah mm-hmm. um so i guess i'm starting i right? guess you are yeah okay <clears throat> so i'm um i'm taking on goldman he's our one of our academic authors that we're covering today and his study was published in 2010 by the Journal of Terrorism and Political Violence. And it's titled The Globalization of Terror Attacks. We decided to take on this Goldman text because of its more contemporary um, perspective or an ability to help us understand terrorism in relation to globalization and the processes of globalization. So. In his study, Goldman seeks to identify the possible correlations or causations between the rise of globalization and terrorism Mm -hmm. on the whole. He consistently frames terrorism as global terrorism. But before I get into more of Goldman's study, um, I think it's really important to highlight his definition of terrorism because we may have perceptions of what terrorism is, but it's sometimes really helpful to have an academic's more thorough definition of it. So here it is. Bear with me. It's a little bit long, but I think it's important. So terrorism is defined by the nature of the act, not by the identity of the perpetrators. Terrorism is violence calculated to create an atmosphere of fear and alarm to coerce actions into others that they would not otherwise undertake. Goldman notes that acts of terrorism are generally directed against civilian targets and that all terrorism is politically motivated and seeks to be carried out in a way that achieves maximum publicity. 
so what Goldman means by the global or transnational terrorism then that I mentioned earlier is terrorism, which I guess includes or terrorism, which is characterized by perpetrators crossing borders or exporting their terror to targets who are not in their domestic state. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. To create more of an international incident. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back to the central question of Goldman's research, though, has terror become globalized or does terrorism, is it having a wider geographic reach now than it has before? And is terrorism a central issue of globalization and the growing interconnectedness of our world that that brings? So Goldman notes clearly that there is a growing perception of terrorism as a threat to international security agendas, which you just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, and that that's increased since the events of 9-11 and George W. Bush's war on terror. Um, but he also notes that the perceived geographic spread of terror is one of the most threatening dimensions of terrorism and that kind of is the thing that propels a lot of multilateral discussion on the topic which makes sense so okay wait yeah multilateral discussion and cooperation meaning that it's an issue that is so i guess has become such an increasing security threat for a lot of states in the western world that it has kind of risen to the top of the agenda and places like the UN, places where multilateral meaning multiple states. Yeah, so he's basically noting communicating that, about it. that globalization is a positive thing here because states are increasingly collaborating about the, the topic of terrorism. Could be, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I'll get into some of those just in a second. Oh, yeah. So one thing I want to note just before I go in a little bit further is that Goldman really notes that it's a really difficult thing to quantify or it's a difficult study to take carry out in terms of research because globalization is really difficult to define terrorism at sometimes at points is really difficult to define and so there's generally a lack of really empirical or statistical literature on globalization and terror um, so mostly a lot of the things i'll be discussing are theoretical in nature so before i go into more of his study though i want to actually i might actually not talk about his study as much as i'm going to talk about his literature review which i know is sometimes or usually the most boring part of a Ooh, paper. Okay, that's also where we're doing like the, the reader the greatest favor then by talking about yeah. it. Yeah, but I actually think that this is one of the most interesting lit reviews that I've read because it goes over sort of the main arguments that have been put forward relating to globalization and terror and if there's a link. So the first one, I'm not going to go over all of them. I'm going to cover four or five maybe. But one of the biggest and most famous academic arguments linking cultural clashes with terrorism and globalization is Huntington's class of civilizations. Right. But Goldman, he counters this by saying that the shortcomings in Huntington's argument surrounding the idea of culture are not really applicable in terms of terrorism in the world today, mostly because in an interconnected world, cultures can't be fully differentiated from other cultures. So say, if you're going with Huntington's argument, it would say that the increasing interconnectedness of the Muslim world with the, say, Christian world has led to more terrorism. But Goldman co counters that by saying you can't fully differentiate those two things because as people get more interconnected, as they have friends that are each other, you know, they grow up in the same neighborhoods, they go to the same schools, they maybe marry each other, cultures actually get less and less differentiated and more kind of crossover, more crossover happens essentially. So in that way, Goldman argues that globalization actually can lead to the moderation of extremism as people are able to learn more about their shared values and their shared humanity. Hmm. Makes sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So secondly, in linking globalization and terrorism, waves of terrorism have sometimes been argued by scholars to be caused by the attempt of individuals to imitate other successful terror attacks. And 
how this links towards globalization is because of the increase of technology and information and the easier way of, you know, the flow of ideas and maybe the flow of videos of other terrorist attacks and how they were carried out and how many civilians were killed, it can actually lead for more people of extreme behavior to want to imitate those attacks. Goldman counters this also by saying that it can act in both ways. So yeah, maybe the flow, increased flow of communication and ideas can help spread ideologies of terror, but maybe it can also help to counteract those ideologies well as people from other ideologies or governments release kind of counteracting videos. And this happened, I think, last year when the United States released a bunch of YouTube videos to counterbalance the serial videos that ISIS was releasing to try and recruit people. So that's the second um, argument that Goldman kind of talks about. Thirdly, Goldman talks about globalization as Americanization of the world. This is a top topic that's been talked a lot about by scholars who argue that if globalization is perceived as a westernization or an Americanization of the world, then it can be argued that it has served to increase the global activity of terrorism because a lot of terrorist attacks are anti-American in nature. Mm. Um, but Goldman actually refutes this point again by saying that that's an incorrect perception of globalization, that it's not the westernization of the world, but that it's instead more of a shared exchange between the West and the rest of the world. Fourthly, some scholars have argued that globalization has created a new type of terrorism called global terrorism, which is supported by minorities from all over the world and connects minority groups who are maybe more extremist all over the world. And in that way, actually, those groups of extremists don't have to abide by any sort of territorial domain or state borders because their ideas can flow across them. But again, Goldman refutes this by saying that all previous waves of terrorism have had both national and transnational dimensions. For example, that state-sponsored terrorism during the Cold War regularly went outside of nation borders and that extremist interpretations of Islam are merely supplying the current infrastructure for this wave. So you can't say that global terrorism is necessarily anything new or that global terrorism equals Islamic extremism because there's been examples of this before. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is really yeah. cool. So um, like in, uh, until now, basically, he's been refuting every single claim, I guess, that all the other scholars have He's been not made. necessarily been disagreeing with them, but I think he's just been trying to show shortcomings or failures in their arguments and basically just give you a more balanced idea of what kind of arguments are out there and, you know, how they are really complex and nuanced. But the last thing I'm going to go over in his study, the last sort of link or argument between globalization and terrorism is one study done by Enders and Sandler that Goldman references, which confirms that transnational terror attacks have actually declined since the end of the World War, or the Cold War, sorry. Okay. So something they have attributed to that is the decrease of state-sponsored terrorism. Um, and the study also showed no difference in the frequency levels of terrorism since 9-11. Okay. But okay. what has changed is the composition of attacks. So meaning the way that terrorism has been carried out is now different okay. than it has been in the past. Okay. And I think that's actually a really good point to end. His study, he decides in the end, he kind of comes to the conclusion that globalization and terrorism aren't really causally linked. So you can't really blame globalization for an increase in terrorism. But contrary to what I think a lot of people perceive, there actually hasn't been a huge increase in the number or frequency of terrorist attacks. But instead, there has been a change in how they've been carried out and maybe a change in how they've been communicated on the world or covered in the media. Yeah. And I think also there's been a change in who's being affected by it. Um, there's a really interesting article by the Washington Post that just says, it's a study that says since the beginning of 2015, 
the amount of deaths from terrorism in Europe and the Americas have only been 658 deaths, whereas deaths from terrorism in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia have amounted to 28,031 people. Yeah, see, that's, you know, one statistic that we never hear about. No. And so I think that this is just really important because we talk about terrorism so much, but has it actually increased in frequency? No. And are people who are suffering the most from it people from the Western world? No, not really. But I think it's the increase of terrorism to Western security that is really the thing that makes it a big topic today. And I think Nagib also mentions that in his interview with us as well. But that's the review of my my academic guy today. I'd just like to add, I think the securitization um, theory can kind of act as like a conspiracy theory in a way, um, mm. if you wanted to, because you can you can you can start to, to to figure why is it that we perceive terrorism as such a big threat? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, who can benefit from that? Yeah. In a way, totally. We don't need to conspire too much, but yeah, at least relatively speaking, it's in a way a little bit weird. Yeah, like it is. It's well, it makes you think. I think. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that it makes you think. Yeah, especially when you see the numbers, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, should I go to my? Um, yeah, please. My academic article. Yeah, I would love to of hear today. it. It's called "Demystifying Terrorism: The Myths, The Myths, and Realities of Contemporary Political Terrorism" by Michael Stoll from Indiana. Awesome. Department of Political Science, of course. <laughs> what else? What else? So Michael Stahl, he is, uh, first of all, I would like to say that he's calling it political terrorism. I think that's very interesting. In the beginning, I thought it was something else that he was talking about, that he was not talking about terrorism. But then I realized he is actually talking about terrorism. He just thinks that terrorism is actually political. He says that, really simply speaking, if you conduct a terrorist attack, that's because you have a political motive. And in order to have this motive, you know, realized, you need an audience to watch your attack. So basically what a terrorist is doing is having, I think he's calling it a, a theater, a political theater, where the world is the stage. So you conduct an attack which creates anxiety because you're violent. And then because of this anxiety, you will be able to have your political goals carried through. Mm-hmm. That's his uh, definition, I would say, of uh, of terror. Um, then he goes into dividing it. He says there is wholesale terror, which is when regimes systematically repress and terrorize its people, and it leads to many deaths. And then there is retail terror, which is what uh, Western media is reporting on, which are small and, relatively speaking, insignificant events, actually, but with a really strong message. So, for example, the the attack in Paris on Bataclan, this uh, venue, mm-hmm. like has a very strong message. You know, it's young people out partying, like the Western culture, yeah. being young and happy and listening to rock music, and then you know attacking that. Yeah. That's you know that sends a very strong message. But relatively speaking, it's a very it's a small. Yeah, in terms of in terms of casualties, it is world. actually, yeah. uh, but it sends a strong message. Um, so he says there are three steps. Uh, in a terrorist attack. And I think this is really one of his most interesting points. Um, The first step is the act or threat of violence. So either you carry out an attack or you you threaten someone with violence, which is being noticed. And then uh, the second step is an emotional reaction, which is uh, immediate. That's Mm. people crying. That's people being uh, like reacting to either the threat or the act um, being upset. And then third of all, 
there's a social reaction, a social result from the act. And this can be a policy change. This can be a war on terror if it's a, a big attack like the 9-11 was. It can be uh, just, you know, policy changes. And actually his point is that this is what the terrorists count on when they conduct their attack. It's not to harm the people that they're killing. It's actually to get the emotional and especially the policy response. And that's why they need as much exposure as possible. So talking about these uh, reactions, the emotional reaction that is immediate that the terrorists might count on, uh, that can be, for example, to enhance uh, security measures. And this can be a reaction because the population might start to think, is our politicians able to keep us safe? Are they doing enough to prevent terrorism? Mm-hmm. And um, this will you know, provoke a, a change in, uh, in policies. So Stahl, he, he has two missions that he says that terrorism has. There is an ultimate uh, strategic mission that uh, all political terrorism has, and it is to make sure either that a regime is maintained or the exact opposite, that a regime is changed. Mm. And I think in order to make this um, understandable, you could say that, for example, an uh, authoritarian regime like North Korea, they would use terrorism on their own population to make sure that they are constantly living in fear mm-hmm. in order to maintain their regime. That's political terrorism. And then you could say, on the other hand, um, maybe you could actually say ISIS, mm-hmm. what they are doing on their own population. You know, There's a lot of car bombs, actually, in Iraq, in Syria. Mm-hmm. They're bombing you know, fellow Muslims. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because they want the regime to change. They want to have their caliphate, or at least they wanted to. Now it's kind of over, but... Yeah. So that's the two. They're both political, the motives, but the one is to keep the regime, the other is to to change it. Yeah, Uh, That's the ultimate strategic mission of uh, terrorism. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a more immediate and tactical mission, which is just as important. And because you might wonder, I don't think that uh, ISIS is seriously counting on overthrowing the the French government. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, they're not. But then there's the uh, the other uh, tactical mission of terrorism, which is to advertise the cause, to put it on the agenda, to have a lot of people notice that uh, ISIS exists and notice their values and, you know, advertisement, basically, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. a very morbid way of advertisement. But because of this, terrorists, they, when they plan their attack, they take into account what sends the strongest message and not what creates, you know, biggest harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then basically Stahl, he he spends the rest of his uh, article talking about uh, 10 common misconceptions of, uh, of terrorism. Okay. And I don't think we have the time to go through all of them, but mm-hmm. at least we should touch some of them. I think we'll touch five, maybe, okay. if we have the time. Um, the first common misconception that people have about terrorism is that it's exclusively um, the activity of non-governmental actors. Hmm. So non-governmental actors, what do they mean with that? People that aren't part of the government? Yeah. <laughs> Like, for example, if you ask any Danish person... Who's so essentially militant groups or... Yeah. Yeah. Like, who's a, who's a terrorist in, in, in the common Danes' eyes? That would be ISIS. That would be some other terrorist group. Boko Haram or... Yeah. Yeah. And not a state. Yeah. But his point is that states actually employ a lot of public intimidation. And actually, through history, states mm-hmm. and regimes have used more terror than non-governmental actors mm. in order to stay in power. He comes with examples from uh, South America where they had the death, the death squads yeah. by, in Brazil and El Salvador mm-hmm. um, and Uruguay also, I think. And 
basically states securing their their power and authority and mm-hmm. leg- legitimacy. Um, that's interesting. That's one thing. Another thing, another misconception is that all terrorists are madmen, crazy psychopaths. Um, I mean, when we when we read about terrorism in in Denmark, it's you know sometimes even talk about uh, having a, like a psychologist assess if the person is mentally sane. Mm-hmm. I remember in uh, in Norway the Breivik attack; they yeah, were debating right. that a lot afterwards if he was mentally sane, and they yeah. had two different top-notch psychologists um, investigating him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another misconception because if you if you only listen to to this coverage of the the terrorist's attack, you don't take his political motive serious. Yeah. And if you don't take that serious, you will not be able to understand why he committed terrorism in the first place. And yeah. that's that's Stoll's point is that if we want to understand why terrorism is happening, it's not a, it, it's simply very very stupid to say okay they're all psychopaths they're all stupid mm-hmm. and that's why they do it because then we will never understand why it happens. Right, and I want to say that Nagib's talk about why people they go to Syria to fight is exactly an example of this. Um, better understanding that we should all have mm-hmm. because of course it's not because they are psychopaths that they go there it's because they believe in a greater cause that they have political motives so mm-hmm. it's important to understand them. and it is interesting just one thing that there is also this debate which we won't get into because i know it's also a vast thing but the idea that people are quicker to think about the mental health of white terrorists before they think about the mental health of say Middle Eastern terrorists or African terrorists or, you know, yeah. people from another race. That's true. That's which, another perspective. And it yeah. definitely feeds into uh, Stahl's point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another point he makes is that all terrorists are criminals. Mm. It basically is connected this with... This is another uh, myth. Yeah, it's another myth. Okay. It's his uh, third myth, I okay. think. But it, it it's connected with the second one about terrorists being madmen. Mm-hmm. But uh, like framing all terrorist actions as criminal activity that removes um, responsibility for the attack, first of all, Mm. from governments who could have prevented it or could have afforded. And also it removes any perspective on like the aftermath because it was just a criminal action. So how can you how can you have any solution to a criminal action? There's not like a long-term solution on a criminal right. action. It's like, it's just an action that happens. Yeah. But if you if you remove this notion that terrorists are criminals, um, even if what they're doing is criminal, but if mm. you stop, you know, just framing them as criminal, then you will be able to look underneath and understand, again, the same, the political motive yeah. and why they're doing it, yeah. and which might help, you know, right. to combat it. Mm-hmm. Um, another myth is that the purpose of terrorism is to produce chaos. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because Goldman, as far as I remember, that's one of his, like, it's in his definition of terrorism, yeah. that it should create chaos. Yeah. But Stahl actually disagrees because, as I said earlier, a lot of states and regimes have used terror to um, maintain their power and they have actually used terror to create order. So ah, his point is that, right. his okay. point is that if you look at terror as something that is terrible and violent and full of chaos, then we don't understand that terror is actually also being used to create order and, and create, yeah, of course, an order based in fear. Societies, yeah. But still, you know, to create structure uh, by keeping people down. And not letting them act out of line. And exactly. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And when we take into account that most terror that has been conducted through history is regime terror and mm. not terror by non-governmental actors, then his point becomes even stronger. Um, yeah, I think that is actually what uh, what I want to say about Stahl. Okay, um, cool. 
that's uh, I think interesting. I'm glad that, you know, we have two different definitions too, or a couple different definitions of terrorism. And I think really what's important to differentiate and kind of take from your account of Stahl is that terrorism has existed for a long time and it's changed over the course of years and it's can come in many different forms and maybe what a lot of contemporary people perceive terrorism as it's not as holistic of an idea of terrorism as what history and yeah the past shows it to be definitely and simplifying terrorism not remembering that the terrorists might have a political agenda and not looking at how this agenda might be countered how this worldview might be countered Mm-hmm. By simply making them psychopaths mm-hmm. or criminals, that's uh, and like what has caused that political agenda in the first place. Exactly, and I think right. this is a good segue, yeah, <laughs> to uh, Nagib, because um, this is exactly what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Actually, you will hear it in a second, but mm-hmm. he's like, he's giving us a long uh, historical account of how ISIS. Uh, mm-hmm came to be what it is today and how yeah. why, why foreign fighters they and not just ISIS but just extreme extremist Islamic groups in general. I think exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think we should listen to it. We should we should maybe say that at least I wrote that in my notes that uh, we had the great luck of catching Nagib in a hip cafe in downtown Aarhus, <laughs> which means that there is uh, some heavy like what do you call it like some some music in the background. Yeah, but I mean the music is lighthearted, which is a pretty funny contrast to the intensity of the topic. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> it might actually be, you know, what balances it and yes, makes it I think bearable so. to listen to. <laughs> anyway, here's Nagib Kaya. So if you want to start. Yeah. Okay, thank you Nagib for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. Could you just start with telling us a bit more about your background as a journalist and what you've been covering in the Middle East broadly? I'm uh, educated uh, from uh, the University of Southern Denmark. I have a bachelor in journalism. And uh, I started uh, working as a print journalist for uh, domestic newspapers as a, as a freelancer. And then I uh, started working for the National Danish Broadcaster DR. And uh, I did some docs. And uh, then I was headhunted by another broadcaster, TV2. And I worked in the investigative group. And in 2008, I quit my job and started freelancing. And since then, I've done several docs. I started doing docs about radicalization and terrorism, and uh, slowly also started focusing on uh, on conflicts, sp- especially in Afghanistan and Syria. And I- I've written uh, two books. One book about the war in Afghanistan. And uh, this year, uh, my book about the, my experiences in the Syrian war uh, was also published. Many people hear about terrorist groups in the media, um, but they are unaware of the historical or religious background that these groups have. Um, could you begin by telling us uh, a bit an, uh, about what you know about the history of uh, ISIS uh, and how they uh, came to exist as an extremist group? ISIS uh, has had many different names, but uh, it was a group that, uh, to begin with, was a part of Al-Qaeda. What happened was that after Iraq was invaded by U.S. and coalition partners, a civil war started. And in this civil war, you had a lot of different groups, all of them local groups, some of them Islamist, others Baathist, 
actually to begin with secular uh, who wanted to uh, who wanted to uh, resist what they perceived as the American occupation and the new uh, uh, privileged group which uh, were the Shia Muslims who had been suppressed under the Sunni Muslims before the invasion so what happened was that these different groups they started fighting the Americans and also the government and uh, slowly foreign fighters started to travel to Syria mainly Arab foreign fighters and uh, some of these foreign fighters were Al-Qaeda also and Al-Qaeda had a minimal presence also in Iraq before the Americans they came but they were not uh, they were not strong because they had been imp- uh, they had been kind of under the radar they were scared not strong enough to resist you know the Baathist rule so what happened was that these groups they started to cooperate and uh, more and more smaller groups started to uh, actually uh, uh, swear allegiance to Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, because Al-Qaeda suddenly said we are Al-Qaeda in Iraq and we have a presence and we are fighting and they started to attract more and more fighters and eventually it developed into into you know later to the group called Islamic State in Iraq uh, Zarqawi Abu Musab Zarqawi uh, was was the first leader of this group and uh, he was Jordanian actually uh, but uh, this group started to uh, kind of distinguish itself not officially from Al-Qaeda but with its methods uh, what we learned and learned was that actually Al-Qaeda got dissatisfied with the way that that uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was acting uh, later when Osama bin Laden was killed and actually also you know some of the intra uh, communication that we have access to shows that they were dissatisfied with the killing of muslim civilians uh, sectarian killings dissatisfied with the brutality of the way that they were killing people so what happened was you know analysts they say that i is is actually practically a merger between the method of al qaeda and the methods of the Baathists, uh, a very brutal uh, totalitarian Arabic party, you know, fascist also in, in many ways. So, so there were Al-Qaeda and you know, Al-Qaeda members and, and Baath members, former Baath members exchanged ideas about methodology and it developed into what IS is now. Uh, later, when the Syrian war broke out, IS moved into Syria and they were actually at the beginning in the beginning they were the official representatives of al-qaeda and abu muhammad jolani he was asked to um, to start a group called jabhat al-nusra you know uh, he was actually asked to do this before is came in uh, he started this group and uh, that was like the official branch of al-qaeda in syria but then you know the mother organization of this group moved into into Syria but when they moved in uh, conflict started between the mother group and Jolani and uh, later what happened was that uh, Jolani had much more sympathy from Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan who was who, who wanted a more pragmatic group and a group that wasn't as brutal as IS to uh, to lead 
uh, uh, take the lead in Syria. And uh, it ended in a confrontation between Al-Qaeda in Syria and IS. And it, it actually ended in an all-out war between the factions. And they split. Um, in terms of the different uh, religious branches of Islam, which is the one that supports the extremist views of a group like ISIS? Uh, there is a, a saying, not all t uh, terrorists are Salafis, but all terrorists are Salafis. Uh, they say that, you know, in the Middle East now. And the meaning of it is that there is this branch of Islam, which sometimes is called Wahhabism, other times Salafism. Uh, and, and these words, you know, these, uh, these words can also mean something totally different. But in this context, it means the branch of Islam that came from Saudi Arabia originally in the, the 18th century uh, from, from, uh, from a preacher called Muhammad Abdul Wahhab who, who actually uh, led a revolt uh, supported by the Saud family who's actually who are in charge now in Saudi Arabia have actually been leading the country since so you had this unholy alliance between somebody who wanted power and somebody you know like worldly power and somebody who wanted uh, who wanted the spiritual power in the country and it's, it's you know Muhammad Abdul Wahab his opinion was that the majority of Muslims had been led astray from the real Islam. A lot of them were not even Muslims anymore because they committed idolatry. And, uh, and uh, he thought that, you know, because, for example, in mainstream Islam, you have saints uh, and uh, you have uh, graves, shrines and stuff like this. And he thought it was, a, it was a way of having other gods next to God. So their interpretation is that nobody is next to God, not even close to God. And people who, 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 who kind of, uh, you know, who are into Sufism, uh, you know, it's a very special bra uh, spiritual branch of Islam or into, uh, into sainthoods, they are not real Muslims. So they started fighting all these groups uh, until uh, actually they, 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 they took some of the biggest, you know, most uh, historical cities and actually smashed all the shrines destroyed a lot of Islamic heritage and uh, but eventually they ended up being pushing pushed back but they survived in a part of Saudi Arabia and later you know when the Ottoman Empire that en encompassed a big part of the area they lost in the First World War they managed uh, during this war they managed to gain a lot of territory and uh, so so this unholy alliance that came into being back then is still there and after Saudi Arabia managed to get a lot of oil, uh, they started spreading this ideology in different parts of the Middle East. And what happened also, you know, one thing is Wahhabism that came from Muhammad Abdul Wahhab, which is a kind of a branch of Islam that demands you actually uh, to, to, to be very puritanical, very literal in the interpretation of Islam, but at the same time very loyal to the king of Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and the king of Saudi Arabia back then cooperated with, with the Britons, for example. And they, later they started to cooperate, you know, uh, you know talking about politics and, and, you know, business also with oil with the Americans. So what happened was that there's another branch of Islam called Salafism 
that evolved in other countries, in Egypt first and later uh, in other countries too. And uh, some of the people who were adherents of Wahhabism met people who were adherents of Salafism. You know, so so you ha- so this is actually, you know, this f- kind of Salafism that I'm talking about, that Al Qaeda and IS are followers of, that jihadi Salafism is actually these two schools meeting each other, because the Salafism that came from from Egypt is a Salafism where you don't accept kings, you don't accept cooperation with non-Muslim countries. You support uh, violent revolts. All these things goes against the Wahhabism of Saudi Arabia. So, so these two th- branches they met each other, and it evolved into into what we have now. Among them, Al Qaeda and, and IS. Another thing about Salafism is also, you know, I said it, you, they have a very literal interpretation of attributes of God. For example, in Salaf in, in, in Wahhabism, they say. Uh, they say that uh, you know if, if it says in the Quran that God he has a throne he has a throne if it says his hi- his right hand it's his right hand you know in, in, in mainstream Islam you say you say it's metaphorical it means his power the throne and his right hand is his, you know his blessing so but also you know uh, Salaf you know the thing with Wahhabism is also the way that you practice it is very lit- literal for example when there is a saying of the pro- Muslim prophet that says, grow your beard, they say, you have to grow your beard. While mainstream Muslims say, it's something you can do. And it's, 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 it's a way of being a good Muslim, but you will not be punished you know, in hell if you don't do it. So, so you have like, uh, uh, you know, a literal interpretation of the sense of Islam, but also of how to be. Uh, I want to talk uh, about uh contemporary terrorism now um, what do you see as the biggest misconceptions surrounding terrorism especially those portrayed in the media one of the misconceptions of terrorism is that it is something that is connected to mainstream Islam I think that would you know no they're not saying it directly but you get this feeling sometimes that that people they kind of you know interpreted as like that you have a vast proportion of Muslims you know not negating you know actually going against terrorism uh, in some ways appreciating it and I think it's because they mix up all kinds of things you know because one of you know the, the first like terrorism cases we've had you know as terrorism as we know it now that the world got to know of in the Muslim world was in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in that conflict, a lot of Muslims, also non-Muslims of course, but, but, but uh, you know, a vast majority of Muslims, they support the Palestinians' struggle for their own country. So, and the Palestinians, sometimes they used terrorism to, to reach their goal, you know. Uh, and, uh, and with terrorism, I mean when they attack civilians, you know. And, uh, and in that sense, you know, you had people continuing supporting the Palestinians despite of using, uh, uh, you know, terrorism. And it kind of gave the impression that there was a support, which is, which is not true. It is not true. 
so what happened was that the international terrorism, you know, end of 90s, in our days after 11 September, took over. So there's kind of this connection of what happened back then and now. It's not something you talk about, but it's like subconsciously something that is there. And for example, as, as a, a, a Muslim or a person of Middle Eastern origin, you know, or f- origin of another Muslim country, there is this uh, expectation from, from people, for example, in Western countries, that if you don't go out and say, I'm not a supporter of this act, you, you, are, uh, you are condoning it. You know? I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions because it would be as like, you know, if, if, if the US bombed a Muslim country, and all the Americans would be considered guilty until yeah. the Americans they went out publicly and you know renounced it. Um, in a lot of academic research that we've read, there is quite a bit of criticism on how terrorism has been portrayed in the media in the past, and whether or not the media actually assists in mobilizing efforts of certain types of terrorism. So we were wondering what your perspective was on that and what responsibility you think the media has in portraying terrorism accurately? Uh, I think that, uh, for example, during the Syrian conflict, we've had a very unproportionate uh, focus on IS. Uh, For example, the Syrian government have been behind the vast majority of civilian killings, atrocities, but the focus has been... uh, We've had a bigger focus on IS, and the reason is because the Syrian government is not a direct threat to Western security, uh, and IS, you know, is a direct threat. So there is this thing of, you know, thing with identification in media. Media they like to do, make stories that people can relate to, and it's easier for people to relate to story if you know they get scared. You know. A lot of media they're using this, and uh, the thing is, problem is that it has, it has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, that in the beginning, IS was not was not a threat in Europe. It was a it was a radical group fighting down there, committing acts of terrorism, atrocities. But they they weren't attacking Western countries. But I think that one of the tactics of IS is, is to get as much attention as possible to provoke people. And and the reason why they want the attention is because they're not strong like, in numbers. They're not strong. With, me, in, with their means but the m- more scary they look the more people they will attract who thinks that this is a way of changing the world you know to, 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 to a kind of a reality that they want uh, if they share the ideology and uh, it makes it easier for them to conquer territory for example for example Mosul and Iraq was overrun like, a few days and it was simply it was to, because the Iraqi army was scared of them, because of the videos, because of the way that they portrayed it, because of the way that the media had helped spread the propaganda. So in that sense, I think it's, it's it, it is uh, it is an ethical duty of media, but it's also a difficult task to to have a balance of actually covering a topic, but not giving it unproportioned uh, airing time. So they can use you and make you a tool. How do you think uh, that your own work uh, contributes uh, to the debate about uh, terrorism and the public understanding of, of terrorism? 
uh, when, when now when we talk about uh, spreading propaganda and yeah. and the unproportionate, uh, you know. Yeah. I have. I, I would say my role, in, especially in Danish media, but I've also been a little bit in English-speaking media's, you know, as a commentator. Of of course, also with my work, documentaries, and discussing some of the topics. I would say I've I've tried to kind of uh, make the things a bit more balanced. For example, we're talking about uh, people joining, you know, different rebel groups, Western foreign fighters. I think I, you know, I contributed to nuance the perspective on them. You know, I've, I've emphasized a lot that not all of them are terrorists. Not even all the people joining Al Qaeda terrorists. You know, uh, most of them are not actually joining Al Qaeda. So I've kind of tried to, you know have this role where I say yes we have this threat we have some people joining IS and some of the people who join IS could be a threat when they return and we have seen it but at the same time there are other people who join other rebel groups among them Al-Qaeda that I don't consider a threat you know so it's really important to to react accordingly uh, to the reality that you see uh, or else you know It's gonna be, you know, fear mongering. You know, it's, you know, you 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 gonna, you know, we have enough problems in the world. We don't need to exaggerate them. Uh, and, and the more you exaggerate, the more unproportional the reactions will be. Uh, and with wrong reactions, we will have uh, results that we don't want. So, so I think it's extremely important for journalists to be precise. After getting to know some of these fighters in the places that you've worked. Um, and people prone to sort of extreme behavior that causes them to go to these groups. What do you think is one thing that everyone should rethink when they read or hear about terrorism in the media, like when it comes to these individuals who have gone there? Uh, that there is no simple factor to why people go there. You know, it's, it's human beings. Human beings are different. Of course, you see some patterns. You see some, some patterns that you see more often than other. Uh, but... but uh, You know, I could be together with four persons from a Western country with totally different mindset. Of course, you have some of them have some things in common, but one of them, maybe he's there for the adventure. The other one, he's there because, you know, he's an idealist. He really thinks he will benefit, you know, the Syrian civilians. A third person, he's, uh, he's, he's an idealist in another way, not in a humanistic way but in ideological way that he thinks he wants to make a better world with some kind of Islamic state. And you have a fourth person who has some psychological problems, you know. <laughs> He's there because he has some issues. He's running away from his own life. So so there are no simple answers to a lot of these, you know. And some of these persons they have two of the things in them. Some of them have all of them, you know. It's like people are like three-dimensional. You cannot just boil people down to one thing. And This, I think, is uh, one of the very important things. Uh, I could meet a foreign fighter that I kind of, you know, I was thinking, okay, this guy, Jesus, this this person, he's really, he's really, uh, you know, a bad person, you know. And then I could meet somebody else that I would think, this guy, you know, if he was here in Denmark with me, he would, I, he could be one of my best friends, you know, because he has so many qualities, so. Going forward, uh, what do you think are the best ways to combat or to prevent uh, terrorism um, in a broad sense? One of the most important things is the radicalizers. You have certain personalities who attract crowds of typically young men, but also women, 
uh, these persons are really important to surveil because they have a very uh, influential role in what what happens with these persons because they take advantage of persons in certain situations you know uh, who uh, who who uh, who feel attracted to, to, to being a part of this group or ideology or you know just you know fleeing from the country and being used in some war uh, far from here but but it's important to surveil these people to be aware of them uh, they are being actually shamed in the Muslim communities these people uh, they don't you know stand a chance in the mosques and you know if, if you see people praising terrorism you know they get like thrown out of mosques uh, they are like outcasts already so so it's not because the Muslim communities are not doing anything they are another thing is also that what to do with the with with the people who get attracted to these ideas basically a lot of them it's it's, it's social problems it's you know a lot of the there is an overrepresentation of people from criminal environments who actually joined IS and with this you know uh, you know it's it's something that starts very in a young age you know people who kind of feel marginalized for one or another reason uh, they have maybe social problems in their family that's why they join a gang you know uh, and at the same time they feel like discriminated and especially if they come from an immigrant family uh, the Danish is maybe not good because their parents they didn't ha go to school so so they, they you know people they say that have two languages two two small in Danish uh, two uh, bilingual but they're not bilingual they're half lingual they speak half Danish half Arabic or half something else so 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 it's and and, and with these youngsters uh, the thing is that you know it's easy to prey on them because if they want to get out of the criminal environment it's difficult for them to be a part of mainstream society because they don't have the skills to have a job and so it's easier for them to jump into a radical environment where they teach them morals you know you know they tell them not to do crimes but same time some of the abilities they have like you know with weapons with violence can be used in a just cause you know I say just with an emphasis because the just cause is is, is, is re-establishing a caliphate or whatever or committing an act of terrorism being a, an idealist fighting against oppressors so you have these young people actually getting their good intentions being channeled into a struggle that is dangerous uh, for themselves and for the society too so 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 actually more resources working with families that are socially marginalized I think that's one of the ways also of handling it but it is multifaceted the problem it's not you know it's not all of them who have social problems you have some people who actually who have a good life but they they're just you know ideologically attracted to this group because the narrative fits into their life and their experiences because of the you know ethnic background because of personal experiences and they get convinced that this is a good cause what do you do with these people you know uh, I think the best ways are actually sticking to the democratic rules uh, not actually uh, uh, not uh, compromising on uh, human rights and all these things because these things will feed into the narrative about hypocritical Western societies etc so so it's it's a battle with a lot of fronts the social fronts the, uh, the intelligence 
the you know uh, the the debate you know official debate you know uh, the religious intellectual uh, struggle that mo so-called moderate Muslims have with extremists is also part of it you know and, and supporting you know the the, the so-called moderate voices you know. uh, now that the caliphate has uh, is, is has disappeared. Um, there is talk in the media of um, the return of the, these foreign fighters yeah. to the West. Is this something we should actually fear? What is your uh, like prediction and your opinion about all these people returning to Europe? Yeah. I would say that a majority of them uh, will not be able to return without being caught because there's a very strong uh, cooperation between the different intelligences and they're aware of most of them who they are and a lot of them got killed a lot of them can't get out they get caught by Kurdish troops Syrian government Iraqi government rebel groups and then you have people getting caught on the you know, at the borders and you know uh, so so it's uphill for them but of course some of them would slip through and there yes there is a theoretical chance of them committing acts of terrorism in Denmark or maybe other places you know you just had, I just heard there was a story with a 19-year-old Syrian, you know, who was who was planning to bomb something in Germany. Uh, there will be, and some of them will succeed, unfortunately. But you will also have people who live here, who who become uh, supporters of this. You know, most of the mo most of the acts of terrorism we've had so far during the Syrian conflict have been people actually who who didn't slip through the borders. They grew up in neighborhoods here, and they did it. So. Again, you know, uh, for example, we had a terrorism case in Denmark with a with a young man of Arab descent who uh, who killed somebody at a synagogue, a guard, and he killed a, a journalist at a meeting about the free speech. Uh, the Danish uh, government's reaction was to to uh, send more money to the Danish intelligence so he could uh, surveil returnees. But this guy, he grew up, you know, in the neighborhood in Nabol in Copenhagen. He never went to Syria. And I'm kind of amazed why they didn't focus more on, you know, the, the you know, uh, the social work in these areas. So, it's, again, it's, it's about being proportional, you know. Uh, and I think, you know, especially Denmark has so far done very well, you know, because we haven't had any cases with returnees doing anything here. So I think it's partially because... Uh, because, uh, you know, there haven't been enough people, I guess, who, who've wanted to commit acts of terrorism, but also because they've been good at it, at, at, at handling the problem, the Danish intelligence. Thanks again to Nagib for sitting down with us. We really hope that you enjoyed that interview. Tune in to our next show, where we'll be talking about aid and problems with the aid industry. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you.